0: Please be advised that some of the audio that you will hear during this series may be uncomfortable and triggering. I'll tell you who I am as to whether or not you
1: believe who
2: I am or not is up to you. When you call Jesus really you have called
3: me. I'm a convict, I'm an outlaw, I'm a rebel. I'm not a Sunday school teacher.
0: In the shadows of cult leaders, it's not uncommon to find children. Dozens have been housed at the Koresh compound in Texas.
3: The cults generally want the
2: members to be working a lot. They want them to be slaving away and, and doing all kinds of things. So, so kids get in the way. So cults will tend
0: to shove kids in the background. They're, they're an inconvenience. In this last episode, Olivia and Serena dive into the often strange and complex effort they took to assimilate to a world outside of a cult. As you will hear, it is mostly a very alien experience and one that many of us will never realize in our lives.
2: So I moved to Austin because my older sister lived here and she was the only person I knew outside of the group transitioning out of the the family, you kind of just had to figure out where you knew someone uh, so that they could help you to integrate into society because it was just no easy task. I mean, we had no training about how to get a lease somewhere. Of course, we had no credit. We had no financial backing. So it's like literally coming in to be a citizen of the world for the first time. So fortunately, my sister had left uh, previously. She was a single mom. She had spent time uh, living in her car while her daughter, her two-year-old daughter, stayed at a friend's place. So she lived out of her car for a month so she could make enough money to get them an apartment. So she had stuff kind of set up by the time I got to Austin, which was really fortunate for me. One of my best friends helped me to get a job as a waitress. So that was helpful. And then just kind of figuring out, but I had already had this whole spiritual experience happen when I was uh, rejoining the group. And so the last thing on earth that I wanted to do was just integrate into what we call the system because I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to be of service to people and I didn't know how to do that outside of the group. So I was very hesitant to sign a contract uh, for an apartment back then you had to sign contracts to get a cell phone and each time I signed my name on the dotted line it was like uh, I was selling a piece of my soul that's how it felt I was like oh god I'll be stuck here forever so I decided to give it one ma- uh, one last shot I went to Nepal and in India and I stayed working in a, a couple homes there um, to see if maybe things were different on that side of the world and I realized uh, the commitment I was going to have to make. And I just decided I would come back to the U.S. and go to school. And so that's what I did. I started studying psychology. I, w- I received financial aid, which was very helpful um, and was working as a waitress. And I loved school. It was wonderful. Um, I experienced some more sexual trauma from somebody who had previously been in the group. Uh, what, late one night we had all been drinking and again, like experienced rape. And it was a really, really hard thing because I had lived with his family in Guatemala and had been very close to them and was stuck, be, stuck between, um, knowing if I should prosecute or not prosecute because I knew him. And so there was a lot of guilt and shame ended up not prosecuting. And then just tried to like continue to live my life as best as I could. But all of the trauma that I had playing in the background led me towards chaos. So I had a friend introduce me to ecstasy and then things just started going like downhill. I started partying a lot. I started skipping classes, started living in confusion. I tried to kill myself in a moment of panic one night in front of my little sister who was 16. She had left to join me. So I was also her parental guardian. Um, Very smart. Started nursing school when she was 16 after just leaving the group. So I was taking care of her. I was responsible for her, but also just totally lost and um, was going through some really nightmare situations I was not doing well in school at that point and I had gotten fired from my waitressing job and decided to start working at a strip club as a waitress because the bar for injury was so low and I had so much trouble with authority. I was a huge insubordinate anywhere I went which is just another sign of trauma. I didn't know any of these things. I just knew I was so full of dysfunction in every possible category and I just didn't fit in. And so I would drink a lot. I'd get wasted. I'd wake up next to guys that I didn't know and just look at them and be like, okay, he's attractive. That's okay. Like, it's okay. We can get through this. Um, And then in the height of all of this, my mom, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. So she had left the group at this point and was living with our grandmother in Jacksonville, Florida to take care of her. Uh, My grandma was 94. She had a bunch of health issues and my mom wanted to be close to her. And later on, we found out that she knew she had a lump in her breast. And I think she wanted to be closer to family and maybe medical care if she needed it but didn't tell anybody, didn't tell us until it had metastasized everywhere, broke her ribs and she was in the hospital and they were like, you have stage four cancer. So I always tell this story um, when I'm talking about privilege through adversity. I ask, that's one of the questions I ask people a lot is which adversity have you faced in your life that you now consider a privilege? And this is one of them. So we, We ended our contract of where we were living. I was living with my younger sister in a couple of days, dropped out of school and we moved to Florida and I moved directly into the hospital with her. So she lived in a little room. She couldn't leave. She was in really critical condition. My little sister had a boyfriend, serious boyfriend at the time. And we decided that it would be best for her to transfer to the university there because she had a much more, promising career. She was summa cum laude and I wanted, I just wanted her to finish. And then my older sister had a daughter. So I was the one that was like available to take care of my mom full time. So after a few weeks, she was able to move back into my grandma's. And so my grandma being 94 with osteoporosis and all kinds of issues, um, I was tasked with taking care of both of them. And so it was like taking care of two newborn children, almost like I couldn't leave the house for more than two hours. I had to bathe them, feed them. And I went from living this super social, knowing everyone in Austin, super party lifestyle of drugs and superficiality and just kind of a meaningless sort of situation, almost at my wits end. Because I had gotten so far out of alignment with this experience that I'd had when I was 16 of, of like finding purpose and meaning. And I was just so like confused and lost to getting into this caretaking role with no friends, no one to talk to in Jacksonville, Florida is just like the worst place ever. I was so depressed I was taking my mom's like morphine pills sometimes and drinking and then blacking out and just like lost and so sad and angry because I hadn't lived with my mom since I'd run away. So this is the first time I've lived with her since I was 15. And even though she was so sick, she still wanted to play that mother role. And I, and that just made me so angry, you know, she was dying and so sick, but I was so upset. I had so much anger that returned, like from this angry teenager. So it was such a hard situation. And one day, my friend from Austin, she sent me this five minute YouTube video. It was an Abraham Hicks video and it was her doing this rampage of gratitude. And it was five minutes, I put it on and she would send me so many videos and I wouldn't listen to them. And just this one, for some reason, I put it in my headphones and I turned it on and she's saying, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you so much for the pain that helps us to enjoy beauty. And she's just going on for five minutes and I swear to God, I had this like same feeling rush over me like when I was 15 of this love and this like complete change of perspective and in an instant everything changed I realized that my nothing has to change around me but if I change my perspective everything changes so I started waking up every morning full of gratitude. I spent two hours listening to videos that were inspiring and motivational. And I started meditating and I'd be like joyfully cooking for my mom and and my grandma. Whereas before, like it was such a horrible chore. I didn't want to do it. And my mom started to get better because she was so worried about me and how unhappy I was. And because I was like smiling and playing music and it was just complete. I had a completely different energy, a psychic change, another spiritual experience, which now I realize is the shift that happens when you shift out of victim mindset. I hadn't worked the whole time. I had just been taking care of them. So I was, I had kind of gotten to that place where I could finally work and, um, And there was no opportunities in Jacksonville, Florida. So I decided to move to Houston. And my mom moved in with my older sister because she was pretty self-sufficient at that point. So I moved to Houston and um, I met my ex, uh, this Israeli guy, almost right away. And he had a medical sales company, which we started together. He taught me a lot about business. A lot about sales. I started making uh, a lot of money, and started partying again because he was a big partier and loved cocaine and Molly and alcohol. And so we were working like sixty-six hours a week, and then partying a shit ton. And he um, he was very abusive, physically and emotionally. So I experienced a lot of physical abuse, um, getting pulled by, dragged by my hair across the carpet and I snore. So he would wake me up by punching me or kicking me off the bed. For three years, we were together. And during that time, my mom passed away. So six months after I moved to Houston, it just started to get worse. And, um, she fell and within like a month she passed, so she passed on my birthday while well, she slipped into conscious, she slipped out of consciousness on July 12th, which is my birthday. And then finally died five days later. We were all there at the house in Jacksonville. My ex was like, you have to come back the next day and start working again. So I went back to Houston and he wouldn't let me grieve. And it just started to get worse and worse and worse. So finally it ended in a fit of rage. I took half the company and moved to Austin. I burned his company to the ground. I was in this like hell hath no fury as a woman scorned place. And just driven by like anger and grief that I didn't know I had stored in me. And I just, um, took half the employees, and I started working in this medical sales company by myself. So I was really successful in the business arena, but I was completely falling apart inside. And my communication skills were just getting worse and worse. My ego is so big, and I had so many protector parts that Just wouldn't let anybody tell me anything. So I ruined a lot of relationships and found myself in a place, you know, and I was still drinking a lot. I got a DWI court ordered to go to AA. I went to AA and I was like, this is awesome. This is, this is the problem. This has been my problem. I have a disease. I'm an alcoholic. Great. I can buy into this. So at least it was just a glimmer of hope, you know, and it was like a solution. So I was like, okay, I'm into this. So I did the 12 step program. I got a sponsor. I uh, started doing the, the steps and on step four, when you write out all your resentments and then you tell your sponsor and they go over and they help you see your part in all of it. I had another shift. I was like, that's true. All these resentments I've had, I'm the one who like started it in the first place. Like I played such a huge role in all of this. The resentments washed away. I stepped into this place of power and my relationships with people started to change. So I was sober for about two years and after that time, I uh, I had started a coaching business because I really wanted to help people um, to find this place that I had found, this happiness without drugs and alcohol and um, this sort of place of freedom. And that was amazing. And pretty soon I started to outgrow that mindset. I'd read a lot of books about the power of the unconscious mind and or the subconscious mind and how we can overcome anything and the power that we have within ourselves. And that stopped matching up with the narrative in the 12 step program, which is that you're sick and you'll always be sick. And um, there's, there's this one substance that has so much power over you and it just didn't sit well with me. And on top of that, I, there were some things I just couldn't figure out that were still wrong. I had a lot of anger and sometimes I'd get triggered and I'd fly into like rage and I'm like, what is going on with me? There's still something wrong and it can't be the alcohol because I'm not drinking anymore. I didn't know very much about trauma and I started to just hear about psychedelics and I heard a podcast with Rick Doblin from MAPS. And I was like, that sounds so interesting. It sounds like it could help me. And right close to that time, I think maybe a month later, uh, I had a friend who was MAPS trained, offered to do some sessions with me. I was like, yes, sure. And uh, before we started the session, he's like, have you ever taken the ACE test? And I was like, oh, I don't need to take that. That's like for severe trauma. Like in child abuse, like that's not, I don't think I need to take face. Like, well, why don't we just take it anyway? So, the ACE test has 10 questions that measure childhood trauma and its direct correlation to dysfunction in adulthood. There's 10 questions, and each time you answer yes, it's one marker for trauma. So, if you've answered yes to three or four of these questions, the statistics show. chance of being on antidepressants for the rest of your life. 50% chance of suicide or cancer, 20% chance of suicide, super poor work performance. So you you're just going from job to job, high number of sexual partners. So really, really high on the promiscuity scale. Um, The list goes on and on. And that's out of four. I scored an eight out of ten, and my whole world, I'm like, no wonder I have cognitive, behavioral, economic, and social dysfunction. All of this stuff that I would just couldn't figure out because the way I saw my childhood was like, oh, it's fine. You know, we had this missionary organization. My mom was really sweet, but I'm super fucked up, and I have no idea why. So um, I did the MDMA therapy. I got to talk about things that I was planning on taking to the grave with me. I've had five abortions in my life. I've experienced so much sexual trauma. I've done things that like, I just thought if anybody knew this, I would be a pariah for the rest of my life. And upon revealing this stuff to an empathetic witness with this beautiful healing medicine that is MDMA which quiets the fear center so that we can talk about things that we normally couldn't and started to restructure my mind it began to change my life of course after that I had years of integration of integrating all of the the knowledge and learning about trauma and um reading and refueling my system with new information it began to change my life. And I realized that this was the missing piece for um, my work with people and how I could help people to a much, much, much deeper degree. And so I've been doing that for a couple of years through the Activation Project. And now we're opening Activation House, which is going to be a ketamine clinic right in the middle of downtown. We have an amazing staff of doctors and therapists. It's an integration center for people who've gone through psychedelic experiences to come and find the right information, the right community, have the right accountability system and the plan to apply what they've learned in these sessions and then a community center. So it's going to be a place, a third space for people to gather just like churches provided for so long a place for people to come and connect to a higher power maybe or to a purpose or to other people who are kind of going through this change in their life to continue the momentum a place for this consciousness to reside because there's so much beautiful transformation that's happening not only in austin but all over the world and people need a place to gather and a place to come together and share their experiences and learn from others because One thing we know is that mental illness is on the rise. And we also know that therapists are on the verge of burnout. So how do we help to buffer some of this fallout by training coaches and how to integrate these experiences that people are having, to have this peer-to-peer support, this accountability. And so that's what Activation House is. And we're gonna be opening in Austin, but also in other cities around the country.
1: So at 18, I go from rules, um, sexual abuse, begging on streets to just dropped into the U.S., which was my country that I did not grow up in. I grew up in Japan. I grew up in Brazil and Mexico and Guatemala. I never been in the U.S. except for two or three days to visit relatives in between our flight from Brazil to Mexico. That was it um so i didn't like this country was not my country to me brazil was my home um so i didn't know i had i didn't know what a bank account was i didn't know how to get a job i didn't know what a resume was i didn't know what a credit card was i didn't know anything i didn't exist in the u.s um which is exactly why i went and got my ged so i would have some sort of record that i actually existed in this country um And so from there, I had no idea, I had no job skills, I didn't know how to speak to people, because I came from a cult where we were only taught to speak a certain way and we only read certain publications, I couldn't relate to anyone my age because I didn't go to high school, I never watched TV, I had no idea how to do anything. I didn't know what people did in high school to this day. I don't know how old you are in what grade when someone says, Oh, this happened to me in fifth grade. I'm still like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what that means. You have to tell me how old you are. I don't know. (laughs) So, um, the best thing I could do, unfortunately, and unfortunately was to resort to what I was taught, the skills that I was taught in the cult, which was all based around sex and about and around your looks. So, Immediately, I started working at a massage parlor, which, which was um, kind of low-key hiring girls who were not registered with the state. And I was able to make money that way, giving massage to dirty old men again. So I kind of went from being abused and molested with old men in the cult to now having to massage men. But in my mind, I was making money off of it. And, it, and now it was kind of up to me what I could allow and what I didn't. So I actually, even though it was disgusting for me, I was 18 and 19. um, In a way I had no choice for one. I needed to get a car. I needed money. um, But also it made me be able to say no, because in these situations when men were coming into these massage parlors where they had, they knew there were these cute, Young girls massaging them, they would try to ask for extra favors. So it was, I knew it was up to me to start establishing boundaries for that. So it was a terrible experience, yes, but it also taught me that I was, I could say no um, to these men. And now, of course, my tip wouldn't be as big because I wasn't giving them extra favors. But it was, it was my choice to do that now. So slowly. I was able to get money to get a car. Um, and then I tried to get some other jobs, being a waitress, you know, a bartender. I hated it. You know, I, I just, I really hated being a, a server. I have so much respect for those people because I walked out twice on day three of both those jobs. I couldn't stand it. And I just kept going back to, um, to the massaging because that was really All I knew, I started um, going to clubs and I started partying with a lot of people that I was meeting. I started doing a lot of drugs and got into the party scene in Houston, where we were basically partying every night and not sleeping on the weekend, taking drugs to to keep going until Sunday night, where we would just pass out and then wake up Monday and do work and do it all over again. Um, I became a stripper. Uh, at in, in multiple clubs in Houston for about two and a half years. And again, I you know resorted to things that I knew. All I was taught was that in growing up in the cult was that I was there for the men's pleasure and for the men's sexual desire and they and like you just had to literally roll over and be like thank you, you know, and you were supposed to submit and it was encouraged, you know, and just submit women submit to your elders, women submit to your men. There's these things that were taught in the Bible. So I just was doing the same things that I knew how to make money. That was literally my only life skills and was knowing how to to make money in the the outside world was massaging old men and stripping, using my body for money. But that got me by um, and what jolted me out of that was that I got beat up outside of a strip club by other strippers and i suddenly realized that hey i actually uh don't want to do this anymore <laughs> i want to actually find a career that i could that i can excel in so um amazingly enough i had um a customer in a in the strip club that would come see me and he owned his own computer um computer company and he said he was looking for a receptionist if I knew anyone. And I said, I'll do it. And he said, well, the pay is $15 an hour and you're making like thousand dollars a night. And I was like, I don't care. I got to get out of this. And I, this man took a huge chance on me, uh, a random stripper from a club in Houston and hired me into his company to be a receptionist at his company. And I did it. And from there in his company, I actually worked my way up to regional manager, um, of the of the company that I was that I worked with, he allowed me to set my own schedule, so I could start going to classes at community college, so I would, could work towards my degree. And um, yeah, this man, I I owe so much to him because he took me out of the strip club. Um, well, I took myself out, but he allowed me the opportunity. to to get out of the strip club and to actually start working in the corporate world. And I still didn't have a degree. I had nothing. I just had my GED. But I really wanted to get an education and to go to college. So I was able to transfer after going to community college in Houston. I was able to transfer to Austin because I wanted to go to UT. And I worked for this company for 10 years as I went through community college and graduated at UT. Um, And then I moved on. By that time, I had I had uh, 10 years of work experience um, under my belt, and I I started working at at the corporate office job probably when I was about 24. So it was right on time when a normal kid would graduate college and start working at a normal job. So really, I didn't lose any professional job experience at all. By the time I graduated from UT, I got another job, a much higher paying job like five months after graduation and moved on in the IT field. And I've been on and off working in in the IT field in Austin. Um, It's now probably been like 14 years apart from my side business as a trauma specialist that I work with others. So um, that's kind of how I managed to get from after the cult to where I am
3: now.
0: We've been telling stories of all kinds since the beginning. Stories of horror, victory, romance, devastation, joy, grief, and more. In this case, this will not be the last story anyone tells about surviving a cult. It may be in our nature as humans to continue to seek community, but then realize that not all communities have our best interests at heart. Heather ends our journey in this series by providing a powerful commentary about why people continue to be pulled into cults.
3: I want to say like my first, I'm like for the amount of media coverage and I'm like flashing red light warnings about every kind of cult. It's shocking to me that people are still in cults, but it happens every single day. And like there, we kind of joke about it, you know, because we all want to be a part of something. So it's like, okay, so if you put more than six people together in a room, is that a cult, you know, and label it something? Is that what makes it a cult? What is the dynamic that goes from being a good thing, being a group of people that are like-minded, have the same ideas um, and are living out even their own set of ideas. Whereas, you know, does it go from being called an institution or a church or spiritual practice? You know, I'm like, you could call yoga cult. You could call, you know, I'm like, well, then in that case, yeah, I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm in a cult still. You know, there's, how do you want to brand it? I think that kind of, it's like, what is the turning point for it being branded a cult, because I think, you know, anybody's capable of, I think when it, when it's the isolation, like that, maybe that's the difference is when it becomes isolating from, you know, your family, from, you know, having the option to change your mind and say, "Mm, maybe this isn't for me, you know, this is not lining up with, my beliefs anymore, or, you know, I just don't want to do it anymore. When it becomes a production to undo it or to change your mind, I think that's when it's dangerous. When, when the freedom of choice is taken away to be like, mm, we're just going to go our separate ways. That's, I think that was the dangerous part of it. And that's probably the common, even with Scientology, you know some of the other ones that are really strict about who they talk to who you know what you do what you're representing you can only be a certain act a certain way dress a certain way talk a certain way all those things those liberties are regulated that's probably the line where it's like okay that's that's kind of culty